0: Take our offering. If you're new, you can just let that go by. Um, but there's uh, much thanksgiving and gratitude if you're a part of uh, helping to support this church, and uh, we're just so grateful for you uh, being a part of that. Okay, so a um, couple of, of disclaimers. First of all, I'm totally exhausted from faith walking and all this stuff. So um, I, I'm, I might already be at my, as Angela calls, my word limit. So, um, if if anything weird comes out of my face, um, as far as some weird sounding words or sounds, um, that's probably why. But here's what we're doing this morning. This morning, we are going to unpack three verses, uh, a whopping three verses. But here's the thing, they are loaded, loaded with... Thick and heavy theology, loaded with meaning, loaded with controversy, and um, we're going to have a blast for the next four hours. Just kidding. (laughs) Um, So what we're going to do is we're going to read it, then we're going to pray, and then we're going to move kind of verse by verse, word by word through the passage. Deal? Deal? Everybody? No deal? All right. Donuts early for you then. Um, (laughs) I shouldn't have said that. Let's pray. No, let's read and then we'll pray. Paul says this in verse nine. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Let me pray. God, this is a thick passage. And God, we love the fact that you speak to us. We love the fact that you love us. We love the fact that Uh, Your words can be sometimes amazing and joyous. But God, sometimes they are difficult. And you say words to us, you speak to us through these apostles, through these writers, to get our lives right side up according to your kingdom. God, we experience, we want to experience you here and now this morning as we wrestle with this passage and we wrestle with what it looks like to be kingdom people. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So, a lot of you here, uh, you may have heard, I don't know, in that um, this kind of elephant in the room phrase. Um, in that passage, this one that kind of gets you uh, feeling, you might be asking yourself like, okay, how is he going to deal with that? How is he going to, what is he going to say? What is his approach to be with that one? Um, Some of you in this room think that uh, you can follow Jesus and still do that. Some of you in this room think, there's no way you could follow Jesus and still do that. So what I wanna do is I want you to just hold on to that. We're gonna talk about being greedy in a little while. Okay, just, I know that you're worried about that one. So we'll get into greed, just hang on. This is my attempt at lightning, thanks. Um, thank you. So lots of ground to cover. Here we go. Verse 9. Paul says, and remember the context of this, okay? This is a letter that Paul is writing to who? The Corinthians. The Corinthians. But what kind of Corinthians? Sure, sure. Followers of Jesus. These are for, fo- this This is a letter specifically to a cluster, a little colony of, of Jesus followers living in Corinth, one of the most of vibrant, culturally diverse, crazy cities in the in the Greco-Roman world. In fact, we talked about this way back 16 weeks ago when we started this whole thing. You're like, really? Yeah, 16 weeks ago. Um, that this was a city that was like New York, Las Vegas, a- and, and Los Angeles all rolled into one. It was a port city. There's idolatry, there's, there's so much a uh, crazy cultural practice happening. And Paul is writing this letter to a colony of believers, believers living in that time and he says this in verse 9, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Now, last week Randy unpacked this crazy passage about these two guys that are suing each other. And Paul actually calls them wrongdoers. He's like, you cheat and do wrong. And so this verse is like carrying that on. He says, don't you know that those who cheat and do wrong, wrongdoers, will not inherit the kingdom of God? And when we talk about the kingdom of God, a lot of times we get um, uh, sideways with this a little bit in our church culture. Um, Some of us think that the kingdom of God is going to heaven when you die. And there is an American obsession with the phrase going to heaven when you die. And that phrase is nowhere in the New Testament. And we've created this idea that, oh, we. I've got a ticket to heaven. I'm going to go to heaven when you die. And then you remember the, uh, sometimes there were some uh, ways that people would uh, uh, talk about uh, sharing the gospel with people. They're like, do you, want, do you know when you're, where you're going to go when you die? You know, it was the intro to the conversation, right? And so Paul, Paul is actually talking about something bigger, something more panoramic than just going to heaven when you die. That's involved, there's something involved there, but Paul is talking about being there when everything is made new. Being there when God, it finally remakes the universe, remakes you and me, remakes this world into the way it's intended to be. It's something way bigger and way more panoramic when God brings heaven really back to earth. And so what this phrase is, it's a beautiful picture that there's no more sickness, no more death, no more cancer, no more strife, no more cheating, no more swindling, no more adultery, no more pain, no more dysfunction, None of that will be there. That's what Paul's getting at. And what he's saying is, if none of that will be there, then wrongdoers won't be there. And we have so much at our fingertips, when you, wouldn't you agree, like information, and we have so much ways to check, um, uh, to make sure we're not deceived, right? Right? But don't you think it's still pretty easy to be deceived? Like to be kind of tricked, like to go down the road a little bit and go, oh, man, I got that totally wrong. Or I got that situation totally wrong. Does anybody have a mechanic? Is it easy to be deceived? Like... Like, I'm not saying mechanics are deceitful. I'm just saying, like, we don't know what we don't know about our cars. And if someone tells us, oh, this is wrong, we're like, well, I guess I don't know. So it's easy to be deceived. Now, sometimes, a lot of times, we, we, we forget that, uh, you know, at the beginning in Genesis, there's Adam and Eve, and Eve is deceived, okay? Eve is deceived by the Satan, the Satan, the the, the, the deceiver, the... The one who is the, what Scripture calls the father of lies. And, and it's one of those things where, like, we need to understand that that is what the deceiver does. Is deceive us into thinking that something we do and something we are is actually good. So the most dangerous things aren't, like, the overt temptation. Like, no one in here is like, man, you know, I'm just feeling like doing like a whole bunch of drugs right after, like, like there's just not like this overt temptation for really sinister things in our lives. It's usually a day after a day after a day, a pattern uh, of deceit and lies in our life that lead us down roads, right? There's an inertia to the world. There's an inertia to money. There's an inertia to sexuality. There's inertia to all this. And and what Paul is saying, do not be deceived. And we say, yeah, but Oprah says. And Paul says, don't be deceived. Yeah, but my professor says. Yeah, but what does God say? And so Paul proceeds to dump out kind of a a laundry list of ways people are deceived, okay? A laundry list of ways, of of lies we tend to buy into. And so he begins, um, he begins with neither the sexually immoral. Now the word here is a Greek word called porneia. It's where we get the word pornography. Um, And and it's a junk drawer word, really. It's a junk drawer word that that includes any and all forms of sexuality outside the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. That's, That's literally what this, I mean, if you track it all through Scripture, that's what that means. In Jewish thought, in the New Testament writings, And next week, we're going to talk about this a little more. Remember, we talked about there's a few weeks here that are PG-13, but so Paul's not talking legally here. He's talking more. He's talking biblically here. And and, and it's anything outside of that is is what scripture would call like a cheap parody. Like a a twisting. And uh, would you agree that Pornia is literally everywhere we go like everywhere we go Um, netflix and music and advertisement and and we're just a society that's just more and more into pornea. then paul goes into something else he says nor idolaters and uh, idolatry is the worship of a symbol that represents a spiritual being. And so for some of you in the room, you're probably like, ah, "That's really, we really do that here in America? Um, it's just a little bit different. Um, in today's language, I would call it idolatry is when you invent your own spirituality. Like when you pick and choose some things and mix them together. Meaning when you make God in your own image, the version that you can handle or the version that you wish um, or or, or the version that, that doesn't require certain things from you. Meaning you make God into what you want God to be. And you think you're worshiping the real true living God, but in reality, you're worshiping a false God. And so temples in Corinth, you had Zeus and Asclepius and Poseidon and Apollo and all these, Epaphrodite. And idolatry was thriving openly in the world of Corinth. It was just very visible, very known. Today in Denver, when you think about idolatry, the hard part is we've gone from modernity to post-modernity. We've got from secular to, to, to really like a pluralistic society. And, and we, we have a lot of people in, in, that I've known that are sucked into kind of like Eastern religions and, and mixing that. Uh, maybe some things of the occult and tarot cards. And, and here's the one I hear all the time. I'm spiritual. I am spiritual. So when someone's like, I was, I got my hair cut the other day and, and and my favorite, you know, my favorite question. So what do you do for a living? So I'm a nonprofit. No, um, I, I say, I, I'm a pastor. <laughs> that was God mocking me right there. Don't lie to people. <laughs> Liars don't in, inherit the kingdom. Um, I said, I'm a pastor. And she's like, oh, that's really great. She's like, I'm spiritual. And uh, it, was, it was like, it was an interesting conversation because then I asked her, it's like, okay, great. That's awesome. Said, and, and you know that I'm going to ask the question I'm going to ask. The question I usually ask when people tell me that is, who are you spiritual with? Because the Holy Spirit, there's many spirits, the Holy Spirit enters your life the moment you follow Jesus, the moment you surrender your life to Jesus, moment the the death and the resurrection of Jesus like lay hold on your life. And if that hasn't happened and you were spiritual, I'm not discounting that, actually. I think your your experience, your spiritual experience is probably very real. It's just not with the spirit of the living God. It's with a different spirit. And so there's spiritual idolatry is very alive and and well. Um, Do not be deceived by that. Now, the next, next words are, nor adulterers. And this one's really easy to understand, right? I mean, people who are married, who have sex with people they're not married to. That's pretty straightforward. But what's wild is, is our, our culture is super into this. And it's spreading like cancer. And technology's just making it easier. And I think in the last five to 10 years, it's more and more socially acceptable, it seems like. It just seems like a normal thing. It's like in every Netflix show and every movie, it's just like, oh yeah. I mean, it's just like, it's gonna happen eventually, kind of a deal. And maybe it's because I'm sitting on it. I don't know, is that the deal? Yeah. Maybe I shouldn't sit anymore. But adultery is literally the most horrific, evil breaches of covenant faithfulness. And and there are some of you in this room who are children of divorce because of adultery. We were at Faith Walking yesterday, one of the guys shared a story about being four years old and he remembers the day his mom drove down the street and he was chasing his mom's car down the street because she had had an affair with the next door neighbor and it just blew up their family. And it's just, and here's the thing, it's, the thing about adultery, it's like, and the people I've talked to that just they're like, oh, it's just like I just blew it, and, and now everything's just falling apart. And see, we misunderstand what sin is, is all about. We think it's all heavy and burdensome when we hear it. Like, oh, sin is just like, oh, it's heavy, it's burdensome, and, and, and sin is bad because God says no, right? But God says no because sin is bad. And it's destructive and it's painful and it rips people up. And it's not what human flourishing is supposed to be. Don't be deceived. Next phrase is nor men who have sex with men. Now I'm going to go really be precise and I want you to hear me out. Paul uses two Greek words. Okay, here. Different translations have it different ways, but most of your Bibles collapse these two words into one phrase, and the first word Paul uses actually refers to the active, sorry, the passive partner in a homosexual relationship in Greek, and the second word Paul uses is the active partner in the relationship. Um, And it's a little hard to understand based on culture. But in today's language, we tend to categorize and classify people based on uh, same-sex attraction. They're heterosexual. They're homosexual. There are a variety of different categories within uh, that range. In Paul's day, that's not how it was. There was only the distinction between the active and the passive partners. Now almost all of the time in, Greco, in the Greco-Roman world, this relationship, the active and passive partner relationship, the active partner in a homosexual relationship was someone of higher standing in society. And usually the passive partner was of lower standing, and they were doing this for mutual benefit, meaning the person in the relationship who was passive was actually gaining something out of this relationship, economically, status, whatever. And pederasty is when older men have sex with young adults and boys, and it was totally consenting in that day, and, and they were doing it for re- reasons of mutual advantage, and I hate to get kind of graphic with all that, but when people tell you, and this is an issue right now, this is kind of a hot button issue, and and I don't want to minimize it. I don't want to make it more complicated and anything like that. In fact, Paul doesn't really make it more complicated and more of an issue here. This is just a string of things, okay? So bear with me. But when people tell, tell me, um, hey, I know the New Testament says that homosexuality is wrong, and, it's, and, it, and but, it, but I think it's purely cultural, what the New Testament is saying. Um, You know, we're more more progressive now um, and and we have not really attempted to, I mean, in some ways I just think you you haven't really attempted to investigate the culture of the New Testament if you tell me that. In the culture of the New Testament, the reality was this. Far more of the culture in Paul's day uh, was used to this Genes- the genesis of homosexual practice is ancient greece it literally is corinth um, three to four hundred years before paul plato writes a book uh, called symposium and it's all about gay love that's what he writes alexander the great short life um, historians are very very open and honest he was he was gay get a gay lover. The Roman army was encouraged to, to, to have same-sex relation. Um, uh, it, was, it was an encouraged, it was a fact, it was encouraged in the Roman army as they're, as they're moving all through Europe and doing their, their, their conquering. 14 of the first 15 Caesars were gay or bisexual, Okay. In fact, Nero legally married a young boy, had him castrated and called him his wife. And so when someone tells me, ah, it's cultural, we're totally more progressive now, actually no, they were quote unquote more progressive. There was, it was much more a part of society then than it is. Now, so don't be deceived by this. Now, I don't, here's what I want you to do. I would love to keep going, okay? There's a couple things I think we need to talk about. Because some of you are like, yeah, but... <laughs> so we're gonna have a little bit of a conversation, okay? And, and I'm gonna try to just do this as, as, as plain as I can. And I don't want to make this a focus, like I said, because Paul doesn't. I want us to think biblically in contrast to our culture, but I also want us to think biblically in contrast to how the church has dealt with this issue, okay? And I'm not going to get everything out. I'm not going to say everything that needs to be said or you think needs to be said. Two myths and two questions. First myth is this, first cultural myth. The first cultural myth comes from outside the church. And the cultural myth from outside of the church says that your sexuality is the most important thing about who you are. This is the drumbeat of our culture. That means that what defines my identity, what is the most important thing about me, is how I'm attracted to somebody else. And scripture says, absolutely not. It's absolutely not the most important thing about you. The most important thing, you are are made in the image and likeness of the creator God. You You are woven into the fabric of God's, what God wants to be the right plan for this world. He created you, he loves you, he made you for himself. That is your identity. That's what defines you. Anything outside of that identity is missing God's plan. And so when people say things like, you reject my sexuality, you reject me. I say, no way. No way. That is not what defines you according to the story of God. Culture and myth number two comes from inside the church. So buckle up. The myth that comes from inside the church is that God's not happy with pornea, God's not happy with adultery, God's not happy with greed, but he really hates homosexuality. Like, man, that's the one we make billboards for. Right? And this is nowhere in Scripture Sexual immorality is all over Scripture. Greed is all over Scripture, cover to cover. It is, and we're going to get to it. But do you remember last fall when we did our money series and we talked about how all the prophets, when they talked about the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, do you know what all the prophets said? All the prophets said that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was hoarding your stuff and not sharing with the poor. And we label sodomy as some sort of a homosexual act when in reality, sodomy is, according to the prophets, keeping your stuff and not helping people who are in need. So, do you remember when I called you all sodomites? That was an awesome day, wasn't it? Right, like all of us, right? I mean, there's just this thing that we just get this, scripture's riddled with the conversation about money and greed, and for and every one of you fighting same-sex attraction, wrestling with your identity, my guess is there's 10 of you wrestling with, 10 of us wrestling with pornea. And greed, right? And so the myth is that this is the big deal to God, and it's, it's not. It's all rebellion against God. So two quick questions I hear all the time that are really valid, intelligent questions. First one is, does the Bible teach that homosexuality is a sin? The answer is yes, it seems to, to teach that. And there are days when I have conversations with folks that I wish that wasn't the case. I wrestle, and there's no way around it. And, and from Genesis 2 becoming one, uh, Mark 10, Jesus quotes Genesis, ruthless in his claim that sex is about one man, one woman for life, First Timothy, Romans 1. I think that's really important, though. I mean, I don't want to get on all of that. We don't need to. It's not the main issue. Uh, N.T. Wright, one of my favorite commentators and, and, and just thinkers of, of Scripture holistically, he writes this. I have a couple quotes from him up here. He says, we need to remind ourselves that the entire biblical sexual ethic is deeply counterintuitive. All human beings some of the time and some human beings most of the time have deep, heartfelt longings for kinds of sexual intimacy or gratification, multiple partners, pornography, whatever, which do not reflect the creator's best intentions for his human creatures. Intentions through which new wisdom and flourishing will come to birth. Then he finishes here. Sexual restraint is mandatory for all, difficult for most, extremely challenging for some. God is gracious and merciful, but this never means so his creational standards don't really matter after all. I thought that was really powerful. Second question I hear all the time. Can someone apprentice Jesus and choose to identify, to choose an identity focused solely on their sexual craving. Can someone be a follower of Jesus and claim their identity is this or that? And, and I say, uh, any more than anyone can really claim to be uh, you know, struggling, you know, like a greedy person and follow Jesus. It's one of those things where it, like, here's the question. Are you saying I have to choose between my sexuality and following Jesus? And I say, yeah, you have to choose between a lot of things in following Jesus way harder than your sexuality, way bigger than your sexuality. One of the most famous sayings of Jesus, repeated all the time in all four Gospels, is If anybody would come after me, they must repent, deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow me. And to follow Jesus means to deny ourselves. And there's this interesting story about Paul and the rich young ruler. And there's this guy who's a rich young ruler. I mean, not Paul, Jesus and the rich young ruler. And and the rich young ruler's like, I've done this, I've done that, I've done this. Um, What do I need to do to enter the kingdom of heaven? And Paul says, sell everything you have and follow me. There was something not just about money. Money was a huge part of this. But the rich young ruler's whole identity was wrapped up in who he was, with his money, with his status. To follow Jesus is to deny yourself, to crucify yourself, to put to death your dreams, your plans, your agenda, your feelings, your desires, your identity, your patterns, and, and and enter into this new life after Jesus. To crucify yourself is to live the way of Jesus. Now, in doing that, experiencing life is is really the true life. Um, and, And really, this is so difficult. And it's so hard for someone who really feels emotionally attached and attract it to someone of the same sex. And I cannot imagine the struggle. And so I don't want to minimize it. And so two or three things before we move on and get to the really stuff that you guys need to hear, that I need to hear. If you are here and you love Jesus and you follow Jesus and you're attracted to the same sex, we love you. We like, we love you. And no matter what you've heard, you have no idea how much God loves you. How much he wants your full life to be just laid out in front of you. You could see this. And this is a safe place for you to, for for you to wrestle not to sin, not to like for us to root that on, but to, to wrestle and fight sin alongside people who are fighting other things, right? That are no less than yours and no more pa- painful than yours, we're broken people, this is like a, a, a hospital environment, we're all broken, God is the, Jesus is the doctor, this is no place for people to plan protests, this is a place for sons and daughters who are adopted into God's family, who are adopted into God's family and household to be a family, okay, that's what this is. And so together in love, following Jesus, finding healing, wrestling with all of this stuff together, whatever your struggles are, whatever, whatever your sins are, that's what this is. And so for some of us in the room, we aren't, um, we're frustrated. Uh, some of you may be mad at me on either end of this, and I'm totally fine with emails from both sides. That's fine. Totally cool with that. Um, the issue can i just let, just end with this you've heard this before in church somebody has told you this before and sir, love the sinner hate the sin have you heard that before okay i literally n- never want to hear that from this place okay the gospel tells us to love everybody and hate your own freaking sin right? That's who we want to be. So let's go to the ones that we're really into, right? Nor the thieves. This one's simple, right? Um, From Butch Cassidy to Bernie Madoff, you know, whatever it is. uh, The next time you think about robbing a bank or downloading a pirated movie, think of this one right? Um, This is kind of like, um, this is us right here. Nor the greedy. This is my favorite. Really interesting. Greedy people are on the list, okay? Um, Greed is mental gluttony. It's ravenous appetite for more. It is what American capitalism is built on, We are consumers, we are trained from little kids to be this, right? You ever heard your kids like rattling off a commercial or they they can see symbols of, uh, they they probably know what McDonald's is before they can read. Um, You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not saying that's greedy, I'm just saying we're just consumeristically trained, okay? And so, Consuming more and more. Greed is totally okay in our society. It's totally okay in the church. It's celebrated. You ever watch the TV churches? It's celebrated. And and every culture has their blind spot. This one is ours. This is our blind spot. We throw more trash bags away than most of the world throws away in stuff. We're really good at this. We celebrate greedy people. We reward greedy people. We yearn to be like them. And the problem with greed is it promises what it cannot give. It promises safety, it promises security, and it promises life. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Real life's through me. Real life's crucifying yours. Don't be deceived. Next one's the drunkards. This is perfect for us in Denver. as We, we love our, our classification as the biggest per capita beer capital in the world. We're good at it word here is is "mēthos," meaning drinking out of control and it's basically this idea of taking a gift and turning it into a god wine beer it's like that idea is when you need another drink when you when you like physically mentally need it to check out and in our culture it's alcohol marijuana escape for you, a uh, place you go for comfort, for release of anxiety from your world. The hard part is it's not a clear line. Like, murder is a clear line, right? Is he dead or not, right? Like, yeah, he's dead. Okay, it's murder. Like, this is not a clear line. And it's a tough one, and it's one of those things I remember teaching a lot in high school. And kids, whenever we talked about sex, they were like, how far is too far? And it's just like kind of this is like the adult version, right, (laughs) of how far is too far? Like how much should I drink or not? Like if you're asking that question, it's the wrong question, right? The question is, is like what does it look like to be, what's the goal? The goal is holiness. And so um, if you're hard, having a hard time pronouncing the next drink, you should probably not have another one. You know, like, like maybe you got to figure that out. And so should I have another drink? Probably not. Usually the answer is no. If you're asking, should I have another one? Right. And so I'm not trying to harp on us. I'm just like, that's, like an, that's something hard for many of us as we, as we, as we wrestle with that. Well, two more. Nor the slanderers. Uh, people who fuel gossip and whispers and backroom conversations. We have a whole industry. We have TV shows for this, right? Like we have whole industries for this. I mean, this might happen a lot at your work and in your in your neighborhood. And like, oh, really? Do you see them? Oh, yeah, so-and-so moved out. Oh, what's going to happen? You know, like there's just backroom stuff, like conversations and People saying things about people behind their back and in front of their face and whatever, nor the swindlers, swindlers, right? Um, You swindler. Um, People who cheat others out of money. Uh, This kind of comes along with greed, right? Swindlers are alive and well. Um, Angela and I almost got swindled the other day when we got hacked. Angela's computer got hacked by a computer and they posed as Microsoft, and they're like, you need to call us and give us a code, access to your computer. Swindlers, right? Um, Christians can be swindlers, right? TV preachers. I know I'm bagging on TV preachers, and I know, like, but I really hate them. So if you're, if you're thinking like maybe he's just kind of, no, I don't like them. You mean all of them? Kind of, a little bit. My father and I used to joke around with me when he found out I was a pastor. Um, and he's like, so when are you getting your own TV show? He's like, that's where the real money is, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, that's true. Anyhow, so the last part so he lays out all of these things i know this is a long sermon so just hang in there okay i promised you coffee and donuts later he says all of these things he's like these people will not wrongdoers will not enter the kingdom of god and then he lists out all these things and then he says this will not inherit the kingdom of God. In English, when you want to put emphasis on something, you underline it, you highlight it, you put quotations next to it. In Greek, you mention it twice. You bookend it. This is really important to Paul. He's trying to make a point. Okay, he says, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God, do not be deceived, blah, 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 will not inherit the kingdom of God. He is driving the idea home that people who do wrong will miss out on God's kingdom. And people make two mistakes when they read this. The first one they, they mistake is they explain it away. Paul doesn't really mean that. He's just trying to make a point. He just wants you to have better behavior. He just wants you to change your outside behavior so that you don't get in trouble. Remember, Paul's writing this about two guys who are suing each other who are cheating each other and doing wrong to each other. And they're followers of Jesus, okay? And they're kingdom people. At a bare minimum, he wants them to repent and be scared. And, and it's just like I, this idea of like, we've lost the fear of God. And a lot of people freak out when they hear the fear of the Lord. They're like, it, it really doesn't mean fear. It means reverence. No, it actually does mean fear. Do I need to change... Should I change this? I'm I'm just just wondering because it's like totally distracting. He actually means fear. There's other Hebrew words for reverence. So what Paul is saying here is we've lost this. Like we've lost this, you know, you're ripping people off and you follow Jesus. If you are an adulterous, maybe you're in an adulterous relationship and you're here claiming to follow Jesus. He's like, that's wrong. That's messed up. The other mistake people make is this: they get so freaked out. They're like, "Oh no! That's why my car battery didn't went dead. It's because you know <laughs> I cheated on my taxes. I swindled the government. That's what's you know." And so that you you're walking around with this freaked out this this idea that God is like gonna zap you at any moment kind of a deal. The point is not keeping a list of rules in order to enter the kingdom of God. The point is living as if the kingdom is already here now. Do you see the difference? And most of us grew up in church living with the other version. And most of us read this passage thinking, oh no, The coming kingdom of God is a place where God's will is done. That's where it is. The coming kingdom of God is a place where we live under the rule and the reign of God. It's the best possible recipe for full human flourishing to be fully alive. And if you do not want that, Paul is saying this. If you do not want that now, then you're not gonna have it then. If that's not your aim now, then you're gonna miss out on this beautiful thing that's gonna happen in the future. The kingdom is a place where people want to live under the rule and reign of God not to live beholden to their their primal feelings and their urges and their desires. They want to be made new, like future new. Now, right now. And it starts here and now. Now we could just end it there, but the best part is this last verse. It's the crescendo. It's this big, bold statement of Paul. He says this in verse 11. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Remember, Paul is writing to followers of Jesus, and he uses these three words, these beautiful pictures, these metaphors. Paul looks at the church and says, you were washed. He's alluding to baptism right here. He's like the washing that makes you clean, the kind of washing that cleanses your past life, your old patterns, your old addictions, the old you, the old identity that you claimed to, that was the most important thing about you, washes that away, makes you new. That's what baptism is. That's why it's so powerful. You were sanctified, Paul says. This is a big theological term, which basically means the ongoing process by which God restores his image in you. Okay? Now, almost always that word is used in the in the, in the present tense, like it's ongoing. Paul here uses it twice in Corinthians. He uses it twice in the past tense, which is really interesting. He starts, he says that he starts this long process in you to, re, to remake you, but what Paul is getting at is that the moment when God set you apart, there was a moment that God came into your life that ultimately set you apart for God's own special purposes. You are mine, you are valuable, and you are on assignment, is what Paul says. The last one, he says, you were justified. This is a legal metaphor. The picture is when a judge declares someone who is guilty innocent. When a, when a judge declares, and there's very much a, a legal piece of this, that you were seen as unrighteous, unright, okay, in the, in, the, in the eyes of the law, and now have been made right, meaning the relationship is changed. And this is a weighty word. It's a heavy word. And basically what it means is is it all goes back to Paul's understanding of covenant faithfulness that God actually, with Abraham, you were blessed to be a blessing. And, And Abraham actually is moved into a new category that God says, I'm gonna do this for you based on nothing you deserve to unleash this on the world. And this idea is that Jesus uh, dragged the spirit of God into the here and now, okay? And when you apprentice Jesus, when you and I apprentice Jesus, he is replacing the past, present you with the kingdom version of you, the future version of you. This is why we did a series a, a year or two ago called The People of the Future." How powerful it is to actually live as if the future is here now because the spirit is God the spirit of God is alive and well and working in you at the moment Now as we land this plane it's been a long plane ride and I really really celebrate the fact that you guys have stayed so still and you haven't fallen asleep part of it's the popping it's helping you stay awake Um, it's just a technical thing. Romans 8 says the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is living inside of you. That's the promise. The same spirit that one day will make all things new will restore creation, will eradicate death and pain and suffering, is at work restoring you and me. To Paul, two things. One, this will be on the screen, I believe. The death and resurrection of Jesus changed your identity. Changed it. From the inside out, from the outside in, just changed it. And it speaks about the future in the past tense. How many of you are completely holy right now? Anybody? I'd love to get to know you. No? To Paul, your identity, listen, this is very important, listen. If you don't get anything else, to Paul, your identity is not rooted in your past, who you were, or your present, who you are but it's totally rooted in who you will be in the future. That is your identity. That is what nerdy theological people call eschatological realism. What you will be in the future is how you live now, how you see yourself now. You are in the process of becoming who you already are. It's the same thing as a marriage analogy. I've told this story before. I didn't know how to be a husband the day I got married, but I was one, right? And for the rest of my life, I'm learning what it be is to be like a, to be a husband. I haven't figured it out, ask Angela. Like, she's like, man, you are good. You've got all the check marks done. You've achieved husband status, right? No. 23 years old, I'm bringing Sydney home from the hospital. What kind of irresponsible medical professional allows a 23-year-old to walk home with a baby? They give you, like, a hat and a binky, and they're like, knock yourself out. Like... (laughs) People come up to me, Ryan, I'm I'm actually an addict. No, you're not. No, you're not. You are a child of God. You were an addict. You are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified. Last point. God actually remakes people from the inside out. Do you believe that? Like, do you really believe that? Do you have the compassion in your life to look at the people to your right and your left, the people who you do journey life with and actually believe that God can change them from the inside out? Can God change you from the inside out? Do not underestimate the power of God to change you, to change me. Forgiveness is step one, yes, but it's not the end. What happens next is this lifelong journey, this change over a lifetime. We tend to limit the power of God. We tend to say things like, there's no way I could get over this addiction. There's no way I could be free from porn. There's no way um, I can restore this relationship with my mother or my father. There's no way I could get healing from the abuse in my life. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is living in you.